Good morning. All right. My name is uh, Pastor Norbert. Welcome to Point of Grace Church. I can see new faces around us. Now, for those who did not know, I finally caught the bug last week, but I also made in time for Christmas. <laughs> now, I know some of you were also repeat customers of COVID virus. Uh, this, this season is really uh, like a wild motorcycle ride because while the north, in the north, the people are not enjoying the minus 50 degrees winter, but here in Florida, we are the exception. We are loving the chill. Are you loving the chill? I love the vibe. I love the chill. I mean, I could speak for myself. But I understand that if you live in Canada right now, with the blizzard and the snow, it feels like an apocalypse. And speaking of apocalypse, we are closing our series on the book of Revelation. So this will be my last attempt to clarify and summarize the message of the book of Revelation. First thing that comes to mind when we talk about Revelation is end of the world. Whenever you, you watch a movie or read a book of, of fiction or anything of that sort, whenever you read or hear that word, apocalypse, you're thinking end of the world. Or maybe you're thinking of heaven or afterlife. Or if you are Bible savvy, you're thinking of the book of Revelation because ultimately that's what it means when we talk about apocalypse. But first, let me give you some statistics. The Pew Research Center says that out of 332 million Americans, three quarters believe in heaven. Now, that's a huge number. Among the unaffiliated, those who have no religion, at least 26% of the agnostics, those who do not know, they think they don't know, believe in heaven. And among the atheists, 3%, Atheists are those who do not believe in the spirit world. They only believe in the material world. They do not believe in God. And yet, 3% of them believe in heaven. Go figure. <laughs> now, with regard to defining what heaven looks like, majority of the Americans believe that we will be reunited with our loved ones. And 65% of U.S. adults say this. Um, 60% also believe that we will have a perfect, healthy body in the afterlife. Another statistic, roughly half of all the U.S. adults, that's almost 48%, believe that there will be pets and animals in heaven. All good? Pets, animals? <laughs> About 43% believe that dead people become angels when they die. Uh, I'm not sure about this one. Now, there's a lot of confusion what happens after we die immediately, and some say the departed become guardian angels to their loved ones. And babies, before they even reach the age of accountability, when they die, they automatic, automatically become the cherubim, you know, the heads with wings. Interesting. Some say that heaven is an endless place of worship where finally no one will fall asleep when Jesus preaches. Interesting. Now, you may be entitled to whatever you choose to believe, but you're not entitled to the exclusive claim of the truth unless they are clearly supported in the scriptures. Now, why do I say this? Because at the very end of the book of Revelation, Jesus gave a very solemn warning to John. This is what he said, Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. He said, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. 
If anyone adds to them, God will add him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. This is a very serious warning for those who claim to know the truth and yet the Bible does not speak of it. Now, as a rule, we who are part of the community of faith share and affirm and confirm our common reading and understanding of the text. Maybe you have heard the word cult or cultic. Those groups or people are called cult or cultic because they have a different and unique reading of the scripture. We don't do that. We have a common share of reading of the scriptures. We call ourselves evangelicals for a reason. Now, based on the aggregate knowledge and recent scholarship of the community of faith, I can confidently say that we have a better and robust understanding of the afterlife or what will happen after we die or what we call heaven. But we know our limits, we know the boundaries to our speculation, and we know better not to claim certainty details that the Bible itself did not claim certainty. Now, we are also careful whenever we say God spoke to me or God told me because people might misunderstand us. That's why we don't usually do that. Now, in case you haven't figured out, the book of Revelation is not a science book. It's not a geography book. It's not an astronomy book. It's a book of dreams and vision. It's called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic means it's an unveiling of the mystery. The mystery is veiled, it's covered, and now John is unveiling the mystery, but through dreams and vision, which means whenever you read the book, you have to take it seriously, but not literally. The key to understanding the book of Revelation is to take it seriously, but not literally. Now, by the way, the book of Revelation is pointing us to the new heaven and the new earth, not heaven. Now, whenever we think about the afterlife, we're just thinking of heaven. Heaven is not our final destination. It's more like a layover. Have you ever traveled? You know what layover means, of course. Heaven is not your final destination. It's a layover. The final destination is the new heaven and the new earth. And the book of Revelation talks about the new heaven and earth. Have you ever even wondered why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now watch this. God said, Jesus said, inherit the earth, not heaven. Now I checked a lot of translations. I even checked the original. It says earth. Why is that? Because the original intention of God is for us to live on the earth. It, it won't take a mental gymnastics to figure this out. You just have to read the first two chapters of Genesis and you'll find out that God created everything, the heavens and the earth. And on the last day, he said it was very good. It was first God's intention and original intention for us to live in, in the final new heaven and the new earth. So John describes this new heaven and the new earth in the last two chapters of Revelation. Now, we skipped last Sunday, Revelation 21, but we'll just summarize it together with the last chapter of Revelation 22. Let me start with Revelation 21, verse 9. It says, Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, I'm so glad that the, it's Christmas and it's the seventh plague, seven bowl. So he said, Come, I will show you the bride. The wife of the lamb. This is very interesting. Again, don't take this uh, 
Don't take this literally. Take this symbolically. He said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Hang on. He said he will be shown the bride. And yet what he saw was Jerusalem. What's happening here? Well, John tells us that an angel wants to show him the bride, what he actually saw was Jerusalem or the city of Jerusalem. Again, this is highly symbolic because Jerusalem represents the city of God. There's no other city in the whole wide world except the city of Jerusalem where God intend to dwell. Now, when we talk about the church or the city of Jerusalem, we're talking about the church, the wife of the Lamb or the bride of the Lamb. Therefore, when he saw Jerusalem, he was actually describing the church in all her glory. So think of the wedding day where the church in all her glory or the bride is dressed in white waiting to walk down the aisle. Revelation 21 is like that. So when you continue reading chapter 21 and you read this confusing measurements and ornaments and precious stones, John is trying to describe us the church. The church, according to the New Testament, is like the temple, and the temple is well decorated with gold and precious stones and ornaments and good measurements. He's describing both the church and Jerusalem temple. Let me give you another description of the city, or a.k.a. the church. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with all its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more, there will be, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, when we talk about the book of Revelation, we're, we're thinking of what would heaven look like? And John is trying to describe us what heaven would look like. He's not actually describing heaven, he's describing the new heaven and the new earth. And though it may sound like very detailed, in particular with all the rivers and the tree of life and all these things, this is highly symbolic. This is not literal. So when we get to heaven, when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, you don't expect to see the tree of life and the river of life and the sun and the moon because this is highly symbolic. Again, Revelation is not a geography book. When it mentions rivers and tree of life and throne and the sun... They're not literal. They are figures to animate the vision. I remember there was a, a Bible study, and Karl Barth, the great German pastor, was asked by the lady. He was asked about the serpent, why the serpent can talk in the Garden of Eden. And Karl Barth replied, Madam, the point is not that it can talk. The point is what he said. Because you see, this is a narrative. The Genesis account is narrative. It has a point. So the key, I think, to understand the book of Revelation is the ability to stick to the point rather than to the details and be able to ask the right questions. Now, having said that, what's interesting is that it says the river flows from the throne of God. 
Now, try to recall Genesis 1 and 2 because this is very interesting. We're looking at Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and Revelation, the last book in the Bible. We're trying to close off because this will be the first and the last. So when John talks about the throne of God, he's trying to refer back to Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden. John is trying to paint us a picture of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Genesis mentions the garden, which is the temple of God, where from the garden there are three rivers that split, namely uh, the, the big ones are the Euphrates. And when John mentioned the throne of God, he wasn't talking about a huge solid chair where God is sitting on the throne. He was talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we talked about this before. We talked about the temple of God where God reigns and he sits on his throne. See, in the most holy place, in the sacred inner sanctum, there was the Ark of the Covenant. That was the throne of God. So when John mentions in Revelation 22, the throne of God, we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about this one, which means, if you think about it, John is trying to paint us a picture of the Garden of Eden and Jerusalem Temple in one, combining images together. So when you read the book of Revelation 21 and 22, think about the Garden of Eden. Think about Jerusalem Temple as well. Now, back in Genesis, the first day God said, let there be light. You, you remember the history. God said, let there be light. Now, what's interesting here is that on the third day, the mention of the sun and the moon transpired. So if God said, let there be light, which light was, was it on the first day? If the sun and the moon only men were mentioned on the third day. It also mentioned in Genesis chapter 2 that the sun and the moon were placed to mark the days and seasons. Now, it's interesting. If the sun and the moon only appeared on the third day, what is the source of the light on the first day? Again, Genesis is not a science book, so it doesn't say anything about geography or astronomy, which means we have to stick to the intention of the sun and the moon. The sun and the moon is to mark the days and season. That's why we have winter, we have summer, we have fall, we have spring, we have chill right now, seasons. So when John said there will be no moon, there will be no sun to mark the days and season, John is trying to tell us that the afterlife will be permanent. It will be long-lasting. There will be no more bounds to time, which means the inhabitants of the new heaven and the new earth will also not be bound by time anymore. And I know this is good news to many of you who stop counting your birthdays. Anyone stop counting your birthdays? I stopped when I was uh, 40, <laughs> which means this is good news. The new heaven and the new earth will be for eternity. There will be no more days and seasons and years. There will be no more night cream and facial spa, no more Botox. I get it. See? The new heaven and the new earth will be compatible with the resurrected body. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed. Now, what's this word doing in here? Now, remember Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, it was God who placed a curse on the serpent and on the ground. The, the first mention of the word cursed was in Genesis chapter 3. And John is trying to reverse that in the book of Revelation. He's saying the first heaven and earth that God created, which was very good, but on chapter 3 was cursed, 
God will reverse it. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more place for curses. The ground will not be cursed. Man will not be cursed. Sin will be no more because sin is always affiliated with the curse. Now, what this means is that the absence of curse is reversal of our current state of affairs. Because if you see around us, you see corruption in all its forms, or you may call it the second law of thermodynamics, the atrophy. Where did we get all this idea of climate change? Now, whether we like it or not, or whether we believe it or not, hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, blizzards, they're all real, and they're a threat to us. But all parts of the country right now are experiencing from zero to negative 50 below zero, except Florida. Are you happy you live in Florida? <laughs> now, meanwhile, in Jamaica, According to AccuWeather, it's 95 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> you see the difference? We are out of whack here. There's corruption everywhere. We're not doing fine. The world is not doing fine. Now, what's interesting here is that the new heaven and the new earth will not be anything in comparison to the present state of what we have. One of the prophets wrote, about the new creation, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. This is what he said. He said, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. The new heaven and the new earth is supposed to be a joy and gladness. It's something to look forward to. It's, it's not just something like a, like a three-year plan to go on vacation somewhere else, somewhere in Europe or maybe Switzerland. But, but this is something to look forward to because this will be our final destination. Isaiah wrote this even before the Babylonian invasion, which means even with the overwhelming reality where they look everywhere during that time, uh, during that time it seemed like to all the prophets, God was not in charge because there were enemies everywhere on all sides. The kings in the east, particularly in the time of Isaiah, were amassing soldiers and tools of warfare. In fact, it was prophet Habakkuk who said and questioned God, how long, O Lord, how long are you going to tolerate injustice? You, book, you read the book of the prophets, uh, Habakkuk, and you will find that one. It seemed like in their time, God was not in charge. But you see, the whole point of the book of Revelation is to tell us that God is in charge. Yahweh is king and he's in control. If that is the case, I'm not worried one bit if tomorrow we wake up to a minus 50 degrees at Pembroke Pines. Would you like that? I don't want that. I don't want that, but I'm not a bit worried. Because I know that God is in charge. God is king. He reigns both in heaven and on earth. And, and this is probably one of the things that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll think about this one. Whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, whenever we pray, we say, May his kingdom come, his will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Whenever we pray that, we're not praying some senseless words. Those have meaning. 
His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they are meaningful. Well, that means you and I believe whenever we pray that, that God reigns not just in heaven but also on earth. No matter how random things may appear on earth, God still reigns because heaven and earth corresponds to God's reality. Let me give you verse 10 and 11. If we were to ask, what is the message of the whole book of Revelation? It says this in verse 10. He said, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What John is trying to say is that in the last days, even when you know multiple Christmas come, people will still do what they continue to do. The evil, the filthy will still do what they think they do. Now, make no mistake about it. John is asked to broadcast the message of the book because this is important. The reality of things is that people will keep on doing what they keep on doing. Evildoer and filthy will continue their lifestyle of rebellion and unrighteousness, but the church, the righteous, will continue to be holy. See, there's a there's a underlying ethical philosophy why we live the way we live. We call it trends or cultural trends. I'm not sure if you read newspaper or you watch the news, but there's a such thing as a pop culture. Pop culture is a trend. The cultural trend determines what we value in life and what we think is true in life. And make no mistake about it, when we talk about trend, Hollywood is at the forefront in all of this. Let's think about this. If we begin to ask ourselves about the new fashion trend or the coolest place to eat or the top 10 places to visit here in the U.S. or the new cultural icon or the top hits or maybe the new iPhone mode model or whatever, think about it. These are just simply marketing strategies to keep us busy on things that have no real value in life. Why? Because none of these things will have part in the new heaven and the new earth. It doesn't matter if you missed Black Friday or your Christmas gifts under your trees are not as colorful as last year. It doesn't matter if we all do not receive gifts today. Some are protesting. No, no it matters, Pastor. Well, it doesn't matter because in the new heaven and the new earth, it doesn't matter. This is, in fact, what Jesus said. Matthew 6, 31 to 33, in preparation for that, he said, Therefore do not be anxious. What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Think about brands. I'm thinking of Balenciaga right now. It's in the forefront of uh, controversy. He said, For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Not that we need Gucci and Prada and Chanel. He's saying the basic necessities in life, we all need them, and God knows that we need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Why is he saying that? Because Jesus believed and is telling us that this is what matters most in life. The priority of Christian life is about the kingdom of God. It's not the things of this world. The reason why we have... This message is a recognition of the fact that sometimes we, may, we fall, we make mistakes. 
Remember, the evildoers and the filthy will continue to do so. But the righteous and the holy will also continue to do so. But it doesn't mean that we do not fall or make mistakes. Recognizing and reading the book of Revelation is recognizing that we also fall. In fact, I would say that even as Christians, we also struggle. This is not something that we can boast around the world and say, see, I'm a Christian, I don't sin anymore. Because it's not true. Is it? Are you still there? It's not true. We, we still make mistakes. We still fall. We're still in this, in this body. It's recognizing who we are and what we're struggling that makes the difference. Here's what John says about this. In Revelation 22, verse 14, he said, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, what's interesting here is that it mentions those of course, this is not a complete list of people who are doing unrighteousness. But there are samples of people in the last days who will have no trouble and who would be enjoying things like sorcery and immorality and murder and idolatry. What, what John is saying is that the church is washing their robes. What does it mean? It means the church is trying to purify itself because, again, we're recognizing that we still fall. The church, though, according to John, must disengage from the world. If we are to wash our robes, we have to disengage from the world. We have to stop copying the trends and the ways of the world. See, brands are trends. TikTok is a trend. Luxury is a trend. Even well-meaning traditions can be trend. Beloved, we have to live in such a way that our lifestyle and whatever we value can easily be distinguishable from what the world values. John says that the right to the tree of life, the right to enter the city by the gate, are given to those who seek to live a righteous life. So instead of the world, <clears throat> sorry, so instead of singing, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, how about we sing, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Because that is the message of Christianity to the world. You see, it's not about you or your family or your traditions. Christmas is a reminder of Jesus. Christmas is about the King Jesus. In this chapter, John faithfully recorded Jesus himself saying these things over and over again. If you read the book of Revelation chapter 22, there are things that were repeated three times. One in verse 7, second in verse 12, and third in verse 20, saying the same phrase, exactly the same phrase. Listen to 22 verse 7. And behold, this is Jesus saying, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, he mentioned that again, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And lastly, in verse 20, he said, He who testifies to this thing say, Surely I am coming soon. Now, I'm not sure about you, but do you believe that Jesus is coming soon? It's like, just a little bit. 
Well, I believe that Jesus is coming soon. The Bible tells us Jesus is coming soon. But how soon? I think that's the question. Now, every time Jesus says this, what's interesting is that John mentions either the tree of life or the water of life or access to the new Jerusalem. Now, let's be clear on this word, soon. The word soon doesn't mean tomorrow or anything with urgency. Now, I know that's, that's a, a counterintuitive, but in the original, the Greek, soon has something to do with the, the swiftness of his coming. <clears throat> the word soon means it's coming and it's going to be swift and no one knows and no one is expecting what that means is that it's going to be an ordinary day, like in the days of Noah. People will be going about their day, trading floors open, kids are in school, people are getting married, but suddenly Jesus will come. He said this, he will come like a thief in the night. No one is expecting. It's like an ordinary day. Soon means swift. He will come anytime, soon. Now, if, if you have been insomniac, it means you cannot sleep. Uh, at night, and you have stayed all night for whatever reason, you must have an idea what it means to stand and watch. It means there's no day off in Christian life. Let's affirm that. Would you agree? There's no day off in church life. Yes? I know some of us here are not here. Some are in vacation. Let's not talk about them. <laughs> But wherever we are on Sunday, it's our responsibility to worship God. Would you say amen to that? Which also means, if we are on a medical diet or just for aesthetic purposes, we understand that there's a such thing as a cheat day. But in Christian life, there's no such thing as cheat day. Agree? What it means is that once we sign up to follow Jesus, we are drafted in... Training begins relentlessly. We are training in discipleship. And discipleship is something that we do for life. When do we graduate, Pastor, in discipleship? There's no graduation in discipleship. Because when Jesus invited the people to follow him, he said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. The only graduation is when we die. The only graduation is when we go to beat our Creator in the new heavens and the new earth. In, on earth, here presently, there's no graduation. Is this something to look forward to? Yes? It doesn't mean that you cannot go on vacation. I'm just saying that in Christian life, in our commitment to follow Jesus, there's, there's no day off. What this means is that if you take your oath seriously to follow Jesus no matter what, regardless if it's convenient or not, normal days or holidays, whenever you're sick or well, you have a huge target on your back because the enemy's eyes are on you relentlessly. If you are serious about your faith, according to the book of Revelation, the enemy's eyes are on you. Why? Because he will not waste his time on people who are doing unrighteousness already. He will focus on people who are trying to live a righteous life. And your back is a big target. You know the target? The red thing on your back? 
Now, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying, this is the reality. Why would I say that? Because according to John in the book of Revelation, the enemy's time is short. And he's making every effort to prioritize things that he needed to do. Why do you think why do you think it's hard for people to realize their need for Jesus? Why do you think even when we come to church every Sunday, we still struggle in our sin? Why do you think every now and then even some of the most popular preachers fall into sin? You see, the message of Christmas is not just about peace and goodwill to men. The message of Christmas is about Jesus telling us He's coming back soon. And there's only one thing to do while we wait. It's to live a life like you have already put your house in order. And anytime you're ready to go. Live a life like it's Passover night. We eat the lamb, we celebrate, but sandals are tied, belongings are already packed. Because anytime tonight, God might give us the signal to march. Live a life like we are about to cross the Red Sea. The enemies are behind us. Time is of the essence. We are simply waiting for the sea to dry up. Live a life like pilgrims in Jerusalem, waiting outside the city, waiting for Jesus to pass through. We have palms in our hands and flags in both our hands. Live in such a way that our eyes are set on Jesus. See, Christmas is not just about His birth. It's also about His return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Christmas. Though people may deny the reality that you are God, that Jesus is God, no one can deny the fact that we are celebrating just because you were born. doesn't matter if it's not December 25 or it's January 15 or it's March 20. What matters is that in history and in time, you were born. And that marks the history of our redemption. Father, thank you for reminding us once again that it's not just about your birth. It's about you coming back. It's about whenever we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we wait for you, Father, as we wait for your return, I pray that you will fill the hearts with anticipation and excitement. And as we also celebrate today, your birth. I pray that you will fill us with gladness and joy. Father, we offer ourselves to you because we are your children and you deserve all our worship and adoration. In Jesus' name we pray.